Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go beyond the numbers to find out. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Numbers. On behalf of Weaver, I'm James Kent. Thanks for joining us for this second episode on utilizing ESG strategies to drive performance and value. During this episode, led by Weaver's Greg Englert, partner of Risk Advisory Services and ESG leader, Greg will provide a quick recap of topics covered during Part 1, and then we'll discuss some of the common gaps between ESG reporting and investor community expectations. And then Greg will ground the discussion in understanding of leading practices adopted by companies. Greg wraps up with some key takeaways for people to think about as they seek to take these ESG best practices back to their organizations. Lots of great information for you today. And as a reminder, there is a part one of this discussion you can catch up on at weaver.com if you haven't already listened to it. But now let's hear from Greg Englert. Take it away, Greg. Quick recap of what we covered in part one. We talked about the, the basics of ESG, and I know there were some of you joining us today that were not part of the first session that we had. So I did want to spend just a couple of minutes on this. Sustainability reporting, a lot of us are familiar with the concept. A lot of us are familiar with sustainability reports that have been historically produced and issued across a number of different sectors, energy being one of those. But ESG really expands on that. And it's focused on the three big pillars, as the name would suggest, environmental, social, and governance. The sustainability report that maybe we remember from a few years ago, dating back to the 80s and 90s, that's really evolved and is continuing to evolve into ESG reporting against these three pillars. A lot of this is being driven by the investment community, which we'll talk about later. But on the environmental side, there are several disclosures that we're seeing in the environmental space. But when you think about E, as the name would suggest, this is anything that has to do with the environment in which we operate. And this could be things that relate to water usage, could be emissions. And again, we'll have some very specific examples later in the presentation. The S is social, which has obviously been something that came to the forefront in 2020. So think about social in terms of the communities that we operate in. And that includes social impacts to the workforce. COVID, great example from 2020, maybe not so great, but it's something we've all had to deal with in one way or another. So things like benefits paid to our employees, sick leave, for example, these are all things that are included in the various ESG frameworks that could be included in your own disclosures as a way of giving the market an indication Uh, where you have spent some efforts when it comes to the social bucket. Uh, Lastly is governance. And when we think about governance, as the name suggests, it's really about setting the tone for the organization. We've all seen, for example, statements made and issued by senior decision makers. In the time of COVID, this proved to be an invaluable statement to really demonstrate to the public how your organization has adopted and also supported your workforce, your customers, and your communities. Governance is also the place where we talk about values and standards and behaviors. And this is also where we disclose any critical concerns we have and we outline our strategy and risk management procedures. So we're gonna talk about more about the ESG frameworks coming up, but one point I wanted to reiterate is that regardless of the framework and regardless of what's being disclosed, 
investors and stakeholders are placing much more reliance on data and metrics related to ESG than ever before. We continue to see, as we'll talk about soon, regulatory pressures being applied to public companies and a lot of indications that there will be some requirements down the road in terms of ESG disclosures. Another thing that we're seeing and we'll talk about is assurance and how do we provide assurance over the, those data and metrics to drive transparency and increase confidence in what we're reporting. So a lot going on in this space, but just wanted to cover the basics. Next up, we'll talk about the frameworks. And I think a key point that we hit on in part one, and I will reiterate today, is that there are many frameworks available. However, there's no single requirement for any of those frameworks, nor is there necessarily a requirement as to which elements or topics of those frameworks companies and organizations should include in their ESG reports. I'll start with a couple that really play commonly in the energy space. The first is the Global Reporting Initiative, or GRI. These standards identify and describe how a company's economic, environmental, and social impacts contribute towards sustainable development. So in the GRI world, material matters are not necessarily limited to those that have a financial impact. They also include things that may become financially material over time. This is widely considered to be the broadest and most deeply researched framework historically. And I will say when it comes to energy companies, this is a very popular frame framework that we've seen adopted across upstream, midstream, and downstream, as well as the utility space. The next framework is the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board Framework, or SASB as it's referred to. This includes more than 70 different standards that measure how sustainability issues affect a company and its financial performance. This includes disclosure topics, associated accounting metrics, and technical protocols, and includes activity metrics broken down by each covered industry. This is really designed to assist businesses to manage and report on sustainability topics, and I think this is a key point, that most directly impact the investor community. So GRI, more broad, a little bit wider user base in terms of the information. SASB is much more focused on the investor community. One of the feedback points that we actually received after part one of this webinar was a request to dive a bit deeper into the frameworks. I'll be covering some of the specific disclosures that we're seeing later on in the presentation. But because GRI and SASB are the two most commonly adopted frameworks that we see in energy, I thought it'd be worth a couple of minutes just to talk about how they differ from each other. So GRI, just as some background, GRI has been working towards the standardization of ESG information going back to the late 90s. So for over 20 years, while the SASB standards date back to the early 2010s. But both GRI and SASB do provide their own industry-focused frameworks. SASB takes it a step further and actually has it broken out by more than 75 different industry sectors. I think 77 is the latest count. Both of these organizations do suggest that their individual standards specific to that sector be applied, and they've offered and, and published uh, customized guidance that is available. But where we start to see some of the separation between the two organizations is when you look at the items and the disclosures that encompass each of those frameworks. GRI, as I mentioned, is very broad. They describe themselves as, as a universe of ESG-related issues that could impact society and investors, 
and they cover topics that are relevant to all stakeholders in their operations. SASB, on the other hand, again, very investor focused. They drill into areas that have a more direct financial impact. So then that, the natural question becomes, which framework is appropriate for my company? Well, if you were to ask both of these organizations, they would say that you should use both uh, since they complement each other so well. And, and what I think is a pretty strong signal of where we're going to start to see some meshing and consolidation of the frameworks. Earlier in 2020, July, GRI and SASB actually issued a joint statement announcing their collaboration and a collaborated approach to ESG reporting, basically asserting that both GRI and SASB provide compatible standards for sustainability reporting. In the statement, the organizations explain their view on the SASB conceptual framework and incorporating the GRI standards into that framework because they do fulfill different purposes. So I think that this is a positive development. Both organizations want to make the standards easier for a company to use in sync. And from this idea comes new ideas for collaboration and innovation in the frameworks. Differences in terminology currently complicate things. So both organizations are trying to work together to make it more clear about how the standards could be universally adopted and applied, and then obviously make them easier to use. Next up, the TCFD. This is a climate-related disclosure framework actually chaired by Michael Bloomberg. So very high profile, been in the news quite a bit. Their disclosure recommendations are structured around four thematic areas, and that covers governance, strategy, risk management, and then metrics and targets. These thematic areas are intended to interlink and inform each other, and we are seeing that they're also being used to promote advancements in the availability and quality of climate-related disclosure. This is another example where we're seeing frameworks and, and different organizations really work together. There's been some developments and push by BlackRock to have companies adopt both the TCFD and the SASB standards, a sort of a compatible set of, of information and disclosures that really kind of fulfill a unique niche between the two of them. So again, I think we're starting to see a lot more partnership a lot more recognition or indications that there's going to be consolidation. And I think ultimately that's, that's going to be a positive development. Other frameworks available, uh, there's the international reporting framework. Quickly recap on this is just it urges companies to issue concise integrated reports that deal with the creation of value in the short, medium, and long term. We've also got the Climate Disclosure Project, which focuses almost exclusively on climate reporting, energy strategy, and climate change, and then the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. This is a series of 17 goals that address poverty, inequality, climate change, and uh, also peace and justice issues. They ask companies to publicly endorse and integrate a 10-point policy. Okay, now for a quick regulatory update on the home front here in the United States. We provided a pretty thorough recap and regulatory update in part one, but what I think is such a, an indicator of, of how hot of a topic this is, there have been several significant developments just over the last three weeks. So I wanted to share a quick update on what we're seeing here on the home front. So where are we today? Well, under current SEC regulations and guidance, the disclosure of ESG issues is required only if material, meaning that information regarding an ESG issue is required to be disclosed 
only if it would be viewed as significantly impacting or altering information available for investors. Maybe a good thing for some issuers to be able to decide what's best for them, but nevertheless, this has resulted in very hard to compare ESG disclosures. It's also worth noting that in May of 2020, the Investor Advisory Committee of the SEC recommended that the SEC promote specific disclosure policies regarding ESG topics and incorporate those into the disclosure regime. There were a number of different reasons for the recommendations, some of them being that investors require reliable material ESG information, requiring material ESG disclosures will level the playing field between issuers, also that the U.S. should take the lead on disclosures of material ESG matters. In that report, the committee pointed out that the ESG factors have an impact beyond just sustainable investing and that ESG-related perception of a company can have a direct impact on its stock price and ability to access capital. That was all back in May of 2020. That caused quite a bit of buzz. Fast forward to 2021. In January of this year, administration changed. President Biden announced that Allison Heron Lee would serve as the acting chair of the SEC. Lee has been on board since July 2019 and has been very public about her desire for changes in ESG reporting. Actually, Commissioner Lee issued a published an opinion in the New York Times recently that, quote unquote, both investors and the broader public need clear information about how businesses are contributing to greenhouse gas emissions and how they are managing or not managing climate risks internally. And this is the key point here. Realistically, that can happen only through mandatory public disclosure. So we're seeing really strong indicators or just strong statements about the SEC's desire to mandate some of these disclosures. Lee has also talked about the social issues beyond just environment, stating that we should reflect on how the SEC could more systematically consider gender racial, and other representation disparities in its policymaking. A couple weeks later, in February, uh, Mrs. Lee directed the Division of Corporation Finance to enhance its focus on climate-related disclosures. This enhanced focus will include a review of guidance issued in 2010 concerning the application of existing disclosure requirements to climate change matters and basically establishing a goal to update the guidance to reflect what's gone on in this space the last 10 years. And then in March, March 4th specifically, the SEC announced the creation of a climate and ESG task force. The announcement states that the development of the task force is, quote unquote, consistent with increasing investor focus and reliance on climate and ESG related disclosure and investments. And I thought this was interesting. The task force initial focus will be to investigate material gaps or misstatements in issuers disclosure of climate risks under the current disclosure requirements. So in other words, there's going to be more scrutiny and investigation of these matters that are quote unquote deemed critical or material to a company and whether or not those things are being properly disclosed under the current requirements. But then ultimately down the road, they are also looking to proactively identify ESG related misconduct and investigate and publish ESG disclosure and compliance issues. They're also going to serve as a whistleblower facility for the SEC on ESG-related issues. Uh, so really starting to use a task force in a way to put more pressure on companies that are issuing financial statements and uh, disclosing their material statements to the markets.
You may recall also in January that President Biden issued an executive order laying out the administration goals for climate change. So all of these things, when you look at what Mrs. Lee is doing, when you look at what the administration is doing, all of these things are signaling sort of a trend, I guess I would say, towards more requirements in the ESG space. And I think it's inevitable that it's going to be expanded beyond what we currently have in the current rules. Just a quick reminder, because sometimes when you hear about this and, and, and people think about administrations, we think about you know, what the SEC is really telling us through these messages and through these statements. The SEC has the ability to inform public markets about ESG risks. They can also work with private companies, but they cannot tell companies, for example, to reduce their carbon emissions. The SEC can provide disclosure standards to improve the quality, the transparency, the consistency of what's being reported. And that's really where they come into play. It's really around consistency in reporting and making certain disclosures required, but not necessarily dictating what targets or metrics uh, should be met by virtue of those disclosures. So that is a quick recap and a quick update on the ever-changing world of ESG regulation. The next area that we're going to talk about is the difference between what we're seeing in the investment community and what we're seeing with companies. And we hit on this briefly last time, but I thought it was worth going into a bit further. And one of the things that we're really seeing and basically report cards on ESG metrics that are being issued and or available across a number of different sectors, and that includes the oil and gas space. So rating agencies either gather this information through the ESG reports that are being disclosed or other publicly available disclosures. They apply a defined ratings criteria and application of both qualitative and quantitative scoring, which basically drives a company's ESG score which is assigned based on their view of how the company is addressing risk exposure across their industry peers. So a lot of these um, things, if you were to go out to Sustainalytics, for example, and look at their scores, you would see that companies are benchmarked against their peers in that particular industry. These scores are made available to the investment community. Again, benchmarks that are used to drive investment decisions. Some of the leading players that we're seeing here include Sustainalytics that I mentioned, S&P Global, and then the Institutional Shareholder Services, or ISS, as they are commonly referred to. Much like ESG reporting itself, the methodologies employed by these ratings agencies are also not always consistent and not always aligned with a particular uh, disclosure framework. So again, if you're only using SASB, for example, and maybe another company or a peer is using GRI, there could be dis disparities and differences in what's being disclosed, which obviously could have an impact on the available information and thus could impact your, your rating score. So again, I think this is also a, a case where there's going to be some harmonization ultimately that happens with how companies' ESG scores are being developed. So different needs. The market wants to know how companies are weighing risks and how they're shaping their business strategy in the context of ESG issues. Although relationship up and downs are nothing new between investors and companies, I think that ESG reporting and a mixed bag, if you will, of transparency and standardization is kind of resulting in a fairly wide gap when you look at what the investment community is asking for in what companies up to this point have been reporting. The investors want data. They crave key metrics. They, they, they crave targets and goals. And they really want to see that quantitative information because it's the easiest way for them 
to see the numbers and understand how potential companies from an investment standpoint are compared to their operating and executing compared to their peers. Much like an SEC filing, they love standardized reporting and they, they love to use that to support comparisons. Ideally, in this case, I think the investment community would love for everyone to be on the same framework and have the same requirements when it came to the ESG disclosures. We're not there, but that's something that uh, I think you'll continue to see them pushing for. And, and we're already seeing that with large firms like BlackRock. Consider ESG factors among financial performance and risk to ulti- ultimately make investment decisions, right? So they want to understand the risk profile of the potential investment, understand where the company is headed, where their initiatives lie, where they're going to be putting uh, time, energy, and resources in the future. And that's all driving what the investment community is looking for. Companies, on the other hand, I think we're, we're, we're getting there. I don't think the gap is as big as it used to be. Most companies have adopted some form of sustainability reporting. I think we've, we've moved past the days of just corporate um, responsibility reports, and we're starting to see more and more information disclosed each year. Nevertheless, that ambiguity and that confusion still does exist, and that's really related to the inconsistency that we've talked about. But you know, at the end of the day, the companies ultimately want to drive value and performance. And that leads to shareholder growth. Everybody wins. It's just a matter of how do we close that gap. So company response, we've set the stage for what the investment community is looking for. We've talked a little bit about what companies are doing. This particular example is what I would call a limited response to what investors are looking for. So here's an example. We have a sustainable development position, very basic information that's being reported. In this particular sustainability reporting example, We have very limited to no data available. So that quantitative factor that we talked about uh, not being satisfied. Oftentimes, these sort of uh, legacy reports do not address all ESG pillars. They're not necessarily aligned to an ESG reporting framework. So there's not an organized, structured way to prepare the information and to help provide more completeness of the information that's being disclosed. This is obviously very good for tone. Usually these types of reports do include a cover letter from a senior decision maker talking about uh, what they're doing, but it can be problematic for meeting investor expectations. So then we move to partially responsive. So here we see more information provided on the ESG programs within the company. We see that an ESG reporting framework is used as a basis. We see data and information and visuals to help communicate and express the message, but we don't necessarily see that assurance over the information, which helps drive that confidence. Usually in this partially responsive world, these are quote unquote ESG reports. They're taking it beyond just environmental or corporate responsibility, and they are covering all of the ESG pillars. So this is really sort of um, where a lot of companies are currently in this space where we're addressing all three pillars and getting better, but not having that full assurance piece. And that leads us to the more responsive side. So very robust ESG reporting. We've not, not only do we have the data and the metrics that we had earlier, but we're obtaining assurance from a third party who has looked at those key metrics and has provided a supporting letter regarding the procedures and the conclusion on those metrics. We've got goals and targets outlined, and we have spreadsheets and things that not only track which standards we aligned with, and which frameworks we've adopted, but also talk specifically within each topic area or recommendation of the frameworks, how the particular company has uh, addressed that and what their current programs are. 
So these are very meaningful. These allow for benchmarking. And this is really what we're starting to see, again, those very sort of um, uh, active investors pushing for in the market. So the last section for today is related to leading practices adopted by companies. And again, key takeaways related to ESG reporting. We've talked about the regulatory pressures that companies are facing. We've talked about the response that some companies are having and making in regards to how they're structuring their ESG reports. And this is going to click down a little bit further on that in terms of some of the leading practices and disclosures that we're seeing. So ESG sustainability reports, how is this information being disclosed and what do these reports look like? So these reports have been the traditional method for disclosing and issuing sustainability and ESG information again, have really evolved from that corporate uh, social responsibility program. I, I always like to think about those as the reports we've seen where we talk about a golf tournament that we hosted uh, for our people, and we talk about some of our charities that we've donated to, right? We've expanded so much further beyond that. And the fact of the matter is that those reports just aren't hitting the bar when it comes to the investment community. So these are commonly aligned to the ESG reporting framework. They include detailed data. They talk about detailed information in an appendix or in a supplemental spreadsheet. And leading companies, again, are obtaining assurance over these key data and metrics. So this is one way, and quite honestly, the, the leading way to get your information pertaining to ESG disclosed, and by and far the, the, the most adopted. Another trend that we're starting to see is actually uh, including ESG information as part of your proxy statement. In 2020, was a pivotal year for that. We saw a big change in the number of companies that were using proxy statements to speak about ESG matters. COVID certainly played a role in that. Many investors were focused on company, company stewardship and how companies were taking steps to protect their workforce. Uh, we also saw big jumps in the disclosure of information related to diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, as well as culture initiatives, certainly dealing with workforce issues, dealing with a lot of remote work and having to adapt our workforce and the workplace of the future. Proxy statements, sort of a new, new and growing venue for us to talk about that information. This is on top, all of the things that I just mentioned are on top of big jumps in environmental initiatives and disclosures, a lot of discussion with emission reductions and other carbon-related goals. We've seen some very high-profile announcements from very large companies around their carbon goals looking uh, out the next five to 10 years. And again, the proxy statement has been a, a kind of a new avenue to, to highlight some of those things to the investment community. We also have ESG dedicated web pages. This is a big trend. We're starting to see this especially true in oil and gas, where companies are now creating ESG sustainability pages on their overall websites. Many of these sites house the links to their sustainability reports. They're also typically very visually appealing. They have very easy to digest information about their ESG programs. And it's a great way to highlight the ESG initiatives underway. This is also, again, in sort of that spirit of easy to consume. This is a great way to reach your vendors, uh, your customers, to help advertise the things that you're doing with your employees. A lot of employees maybe never make it to those ESG reports or don't necessarily have any interest in the proxy statements. So companies that are devoting time to ESG should be devoting time to all these stakeholders. That's not just the investors. And these ESG web pages are a great way to do that. I wanted to spend the last chunk of, of this section with common ESG disclosures that we're seeing. And I think regardless of which framework that companies are, are deploying, 
and applying, uh, we are seeing some trends in what is being included in the ESG reports and the disclosures. So I'm going to break this down across E, S, and G. And first up, the big one around environmental reporting. Key disclosure, usually if, if a company's taken the time to do this, we're seeing them include uh, some information related to their emissions, right? And that could be scope one of the greenhouse gas emissions, which covers direct emissions from your owned or controlled sources. It could be scope two, which is indirect emissions from the generation of purchased electricity, systems, heating and cooling consumed by the reporting company. So sort of think about it in terms of that indirect piece. Scope one and two are really the two that have been the most widely adopted. Scope three is becoming a hot topic. For those who don't know, scope three is basically all other indirect emissions that occur across the company's value chain that could include everything from vendors to certain customer situations to certain capital project situations. Obviously, that can be very difficult to measure and report on, but we are starting to see advancements. And I would say that's an area that's going to become more prominently uh, disclosed here in the, in the coming years. And if we look at this, for example, and you take the, the Global Reporting Initiative or GRI framework, GRI actually has a standard, standard 305, which is totally dedicated to emissions reporting, must support the standards, methodologies, assumptions, and or calculation tools used for their emissions. So not, our, not only are we talking about the standards promoting the disclosure of, of something like an emission and actually putting that number together, but they're also pushing companies to provide the users of your ESG report with further understanding of how your company went about gathering, compiling, and calculating those reported numbers. So again, taking it well beyond just come up with a number, also pushing for the methodology and providing the user of the report with some clarification and further information on how we even came up with that number. Another example is the management of waste. GRI has a whole standards section covering this, section 306. It calls for the disclosure of both hazardous waste and non-hazardous waste. And again, in addition, the standard speaks to a breakdown of these figures by disposal method. So are you reusing uh, the waste? Are you recycling the waste? Are you composting the waste? Similar to the emissions requirement, they also require disclosure of the, the standards, methodologies, and assumptions used as part of that waste treatment. And in this particular case, organizations are required to convert volumes into an estimate of weight with an explanation of that methodology use. But these are very, very rigorous, I would say, requirements once you start going down this road. And then you think about companies with global operations, that's not necessarily a small task to pull this information together and then be able to outline your assumptions and provide a, a number that you can feel good about and your investors can feel good about. So quite a bit of work here. The SASB standards also take it a step further. They require a discussion of long-term and short-term strategy or plans to manage scope one emissions, also emissions reduction targets, and an analysis of performance against those targets. So not only reporting what has been for the prior reporting period, but also talking from a strategic perspective where the company's goals are when it comes to things like emissions reporting. 
Those are the big ones. We're also seeing a lot of disclosures around water management, and that includes information such as total fresh water consumed, biodiversity impacts. That includes spill information for many environmental incidents and other impacts. So a very wide ranging amount of environmental information that's not only based on prior performance, but really based on current initiatives and where the company is setting goals for future performance. On the social side, there are a number of key disclosures that we're seeing included. A big one, uh, obviously, for energy is operational health and safety. This can include metrics around total recordable incident rate, TRIR, health safety and emergency training. Other management system information is quite common to disclose how these incidents are tracked and monitored. The SASB standards actually take it further and are comprised of things such as fatality rate, near-miss frequency rates, emergency response training, and then also how that's being rolled out across not only full-time employees, but contractors and short-term employees. These standards also request, and again, this discussion trend that we're seeing with SASB, discussion of management systems used to integrate a culture of safety through the operational life cycle. We kind of roll operational health and safety into social, and that's just hard to ignore in the energy space. But on the the more traditional uh, social side as well, I mentioned earlier DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion information, a lot of disclosures, and it's, it's gone up substantially over the last year around composition of your workforce. What are your current initiatives related to your workforce and your people? What are your goals and targets? And what other information do you have to evidence a commitment to a diverse, equitable, and inclusive workforce. GRI, for example, as well, there's a whole section across 404 through 407 where they provide requirements across a number of priorities. It takes it a step further because it talks about diversity of your governing body, your ratio of salary information in terms of women versus men, parental leave policies, percentage of employees that are receiving regular performance and career development reviews, So really crossing almost all space of of human resources and managing our workforce. A few other areas here, there's also disclosures related to the screening of suppliers across your supply chain for social criteria and basically requiring organizations to report on negative social impacts within your supply chain and the actions taken. So this is not, uh, social is certainly, while I mentioned HR earlier, it's certainly not limited to HR. It really touches on and covers almost every facet of an organization, of a business. So it's it's definitely a coordinated effort to do this right. And that's what we're seeing in the latest reports that have come out this year. The third pillar, governance reporting. And, and as the name suggests, governance disclosures are heavily dominated by policy details. These include things like code of conduct, They include enterprise risk management programs, other risk assessment processes and practices to address strategy and planning, as well as policies to promote and ensure competition and prevent anti-corruption and bribery issues. We do also see that governance intersects quite a bit with those earlier mentioned E and S pillars. An example of this is within the SASB standards and the uh, discussion of corporate positions related to government regulations and or policy proposals that address environmental and social factors affecting your industry. So we're seeing governance having to really, from a strategy perspective, disclose and discuss how governance is managing a lot of the risk factors across the E and S worlds. 
Another example, we talked about this framework earlier, the TCFD. One of their recommendations includes a topic on board oversight of climate-related risks and opportunities, as well as the processes to assess and manage climate-related risks. Another specific example, going back to the GRI framework, GRI Section 102 includes nearly two dozen different disclosures across a number of governance and organizational profile topics. And this is everything from composition of committees and location of headquarters to providing a description of the organization's activities. And this is an interesting one. Also providing an explanation of any products or services that are banned in certain markets. So from a risk management perspective, you think about this, this is really where investors are going to be looking for information on how you're managing your risk exposure, what your risk profile is. Are you doing things like conducting an annual enterprise risk assessment? What is the ultimate responsibility when it comes to determining and assessing risk and making sure we've got the right level of response? Governance is where this all lives. And the G and the ESG reporting side is, is where we see companies really tout everything they're doing in this space. In terms of other trends we're seeing outside of the three main pillars, I mentioned this earlier, but limited assurance is becoming much more prevalent. This not only serves the investors by increasing confidence in what is being reported, but it also serves some peace of mind to management teams who are having to prepare and compile what can be very tedious and challenging source information. Think back to what we talked about with scope two of the greenhouse gas emissions can be very difficult and time-consuming to pull this information together. COVID was the hot topic in 2020 that could not be ignored. It forced many organizations to reprioritize the safety and well-being of employees as well as their customers. Companies are using the ESG reports to speak to the initiatives they put in place to protect their workforce and respond to business continuity plans, and then also a way to update, provide an update on the strategy for uh, resilience in their operations. Goals are being more clearly stated and companies are updating progress against the goals. Again, that, that, that spans all three pillars. And then companies also tapping their partnerships and affiliations, how they are being recognized across their communities, including the business community, and then using ESG as a platform to showcase their contributions as a purpose-driven organization. That's such a big topic right now in terms of what is the ultimate purpose how have we defined that purpose? How have we made that purpose known and activated that purpose across our organization? So we're seeing much more effort being placed on understanding where that purpose lies and in a lot of cases, transforming or redirecting that purpose where we think we're maybe not where we need to be or don't necessarily have a plan to get there. So how are energy companies responding? Here's a quick week recap of what we see in the realm of sustainability and ESG reporting. There has been a wide adoption of sustainability reporting. I recall seeing a survey earlier in the summer that indicated that nine out of 10 companies now are issuing some form of sustainability report. Uh, that was across the S&P 500. I think that's true across a much broader swath of companies and, and true of energy as well. I believe we're going to continue to see that number grow. Uh, and I think the reporting is going to get much better. There's a greater appreciation of ESG risk and opportunity factors. So as we think about strategy, I think we're doing, companies are doing a lot better job in oil and gas around thinking about where their strategies really lie and understanding and appreciating that there are certain risk factors that need to be divulged and need to be specifically addressed as part of their ESG reporting. Bringing ESG 
to the forefront as a strategy. Companies are using this as a strategic advantage, really touting ESG as a way to drive investment and drive interest from maybe institutions that wouldn't have previously looked at them. This not only drives, obviously, improvements in the communities uh, that oil and gas operates and serves, but enhances their own corporate goals. And generally, companies want to be good stewards of business. And ESG is a great way to sort of uh, understand where you are along that journey. We talked about this, obtaining assurance over ESG data to enhance confidence. The same way that independent auditors provide assurance over financials, ESG metrics will soon follow suit. And you can imagine that as the SEC starts to move closer to mandated reporting, this is going to become a very, very big issue when it comes to gaining assurance over that information that's publicly disclosed. And then lastly, when you think about ESG and you think about social and governance, all of these things have a direct impact on company policy and procedure. If we look at trends, if we look across the industry and peers, I think knowing where you stand against your peers and against an industry will ultimately help companies improve their policies, their practices, their protocols, and will help them understand where maybe some additional investment and revamp of certain areas of the business would be warranted. So looking at the crystal ball, the 2020s here in ESG, if the first 20 minutes of today's presentation didn't reinforce this, I don't know what will, but it's only a matter of time before ESG disclosures become required and mandated for SCC registered companies. I think the writing is on the wall for that. ESG disclosures and underlying data will be under a microscope. Complete and accurate data is going to be so important. And, and think about the implications of potentially uh, disclosing information driving investment decisions and then having to restate that information, that will not drive confidence in your investment community and the potential investors. Companies that embrace ESG will no doubt take on related risks and opportunities that will ultimately uh, make them more attractive to investors, to the workforce. You'll be able to recruit the best and brightest. And generally, we find that companies that have addressed and taken on ESG are higher performing. The impact, of course, will be felt first by public companies, but private funds and private companies, I think, will ultimately have to follow suit. That won't be as quick, but I think that pressure will be there. Key questions that each of you hopefully uh, should be asking or have asked yourselves over the course of today and, and maybe take them back to your organizations, but find out, do we have a documented corporate social responsibility report or similar type information on our website? We have a strategy for undertaking ESG risk. Who's even driving this at our company? Obviously, this is not just a one-person effort. It spans a, a number of different organizations and functions within a company, but there should be one person who is ultimately responsible for, uh, lack of a better term, quarterbacking the ESG reporting efforts. Is our ESG strategy aligned with our operational strategy and our overall business objectives? Have we considered ESG as part of the, the defining and execution of those objectives? Have we defined the key metrics and data needed to quantitatively measure performance across our business? What do we really care about? What do we really think the investment community cares about? How hard is it to get that information pulled together? These are all things that can be a bit daunting at the beginning of this journey. How is our board engaging on the topic of ESG strategy, risk, and opportunities? This has come up in multiple board and audit committee meetings this quarter for me personally. We know this is on the mind of boards. If they haven't asked the question yet, it's probably only a matter of time before they do. Does our sustainability report leverage one of the common uh, reporting frameworks? And are we obtaining independent assurance? 
If you are obtaining independent insurance, that should be hopefully obvious through an attached amendment or appendix that that speaks to the assurance letter obtained by that third party. And then we should see the frameworks. Typically, those are disclosed as part of the ESG report. And there's usually uh, an appendix that kind of maps which elements of the framework were reported on within the report itself. The time to act on ESG reporting, at least in my opinion, is now. Even if it's just getting started with researching some of the different frameworks and understanding where your peers are in terms of their ESG reporting and which uh, elements they're disclosing in their ESG reports. I think this is super important. I think you want to be ahead of the curve on this before further mandates come out from the SEC. It never hurts to be ahead of the curve uh, when you kind of see the train coming down the tracks. If your board of directors has not asked about it, they will. Again, I I think it's only a matter of time. I think more pressure is going to be placed on management to address these things. And again, this is not uh, something that's done overnight. It takes a lot of coordinated effort to do it properly. So again, I, I would anticipate we're going to start getting those questions if we haven't yet. And then leverage your current processes and controls. A lot of things, particularly in the governance space, odds are that your company is already doing uh, a lot of those things and that they those activities align to the framework and the standards. So there's a lot you can take credit for, hopefully, off the bat. A lot of the information on the S side and the social side is available through information that's normally housed by HR. So again, take credit for the programs you've got in place. There's no such thing as starting with too little You'd be surprised if you go through, for example, the GRI standards, how many of those things you've got already and could easily pull together. Environmental, a little bit different story, but start asking those questions now and get that information. On the ESG reporting services, a quick plug for Weaver's page on this. Please visit our ESG reporting services page. We've got a lot of great information, several thought leadership pieces. We're always trying to stay on top of the regulatory happenings and issuing updates there. We've also got further information on the frameworks there. We talk about the advisory services we offer, the reporting assurance, and we've also got some information and links related to our energy compliance services page, which we are a leading firm in that space. So with that, I think we're ready to wrap it up. Thank you. 